Hey there, happy International Women's Day. Today, Monday, March 8th, is a day of great significance globally in the fight for gender equality, but also a day to celebrate and mark the achievements of women in society, culture, politics, and here on the K-Start Report in emergency medicine. This month, we will be releasing a bonus series of weekly interviews with just some of the great women in Irish EM. This is a great project that Leah, Orla, Deirdre, Anna and Marika have put a lot of work into and is a proud milestone for the podcast. We're kicking off this Thursday with our first interview with Dr. Lisa Cunningham. You won't want to miss it. If you want to get involved or have a story to tell, drop us a line at info at the case.report. Right, on with the show. This is the case.report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case.Report. Mohamed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us. As we head into March and onto April, the weather's warming up again, and there's a grand owl stretch in the evenings there now. But we know what that means. Finals can't be too far off now. So, as our final meds are starting to feel the pressure, I thought I'd turn the pressure up for us here as well. We'll see if my esteemed trainee colleagues, Carl and Barry, are up to the task when our adult in the room goes through our marking sheet. As ever, you can also join the discussion on Twitter and let us know how you think we did. Right, let's get to it. Hey Carl, hey Barry, how are you guys doing? Hey Mo. Hey Mo, great to be here again. Great to have you back, absolute pleasure. I'm sure our adult in the room will be delighted to hear all three of our voices um, in the same place again. Okay, Carl, what have you uh, What have you got for us? So Barry, the triage nurse gives you a holler and says, um, Barry... Can I get you checking out this chap? He's a 30-year-old. He looks a little unwell, and he's massively hypertensive. Okay, so a young man with hypertension. How hypertensive are we talking? The initial reading was 230 over 112, and it's been pretty consistent. She's tried it twice more. Wow, okay. So that's pretty high. So I'd probably want to move this man into recess and have a proper look at him. As luck would have it, you have a clear recess. Unusual for you. Excellent. <laughs> so I go straight into recess. I'll chat to him first of all. So I, I'm going to assume at this point, if he can walk into recess, his airway is okay and he's talking to me. Yeah, he's chatting to you. You look very young for a doctor. Perfect. Nothing I haven't heard before. <laughs> we'll put a picture of Barry in the show notes just for reference. You may have to enlarge. <laughs> Strong with the height <laughs> references today. So yeah, he's able to chat to you as you go in. You notice as you're walking with him, he's quite diaphoretic. He's, he's mopping his own brow. So we'll move on to breathing then. So we'll assess that. So what's his respiratory rate? His respiratory rate is 16. Great. And his oxygen saturation? 98% on rumor. Perfect. I'll have a little look at the chest, see if he's, if his both sides of his chest are rising equally. Yeah, love the equal chest rise. Grant. And I'll have a little listen there and to the lungs what can I hear lovely and clear perfect so we'll move on to circulation and I'll get a heart rate on him 95 96 going steady okay so that's a bit high for a young guy and what's we'll check his blood pressure again so what are we getting now it's similar it's 225 over 115 okay I'll have a quick palpate of his abdomen yep soft abdomen no guarding, but he mentions that it's a little, tiny little bit sore at his left renal angle. Okay. While I'm examining him, I might uh, ask him quickly why he's here or what's brought him here in the first place. He didn't really want to come in. It's His friends encouraged him to come in. He was playing a game of rugby earlier and after a particularly vigorous scrum, he a few minutes later, he just suddenly collapsed on the pitch. 
this collapse it, it it happened when he was on the sideline or um was it when he was kind of um getting up from a ruck or whereabouts was he so he'd been in the scrum and just a couple of seconds after that he had a sudden experience of palpitations um and no chest pain or anything like that though. no chest pain whatsoever doesn't remember the class but remembers coming around was fully orientated on recovery okay so now i'm worried about this guy so i want to assess him with the ultrasound machine so uh, i'll go and grab that um i'll do a, an efast scan on him so i suppose i'll start at the top and i'll have a look at the lungs so can i see lung sliding yeah lovely lung sliding there's no lines. perfect and move down and have a quick look at the heart any pericardial effusion there nothing obvious nope uh, so move down into the abdomen now so i'm going to assess for free fluid so right upper quadrant no free fluid um good views same with the left or upper quadrant bit of a full bladder but no fluid have a quick look at the aorta normal caliber throughout so, so far, I'm not finding any reason for his hypertension in a young man. Okay, and now, thanks to last month's podcast, I know how to do ocular ultrasound. So, I'm going to do an ocular ultrasound and look for, for signs of uh, raised ICP. I'm sure everyone has been practicing it loads in their departments as well over the last month. So, on the ultrasound um, of the eye, you actually do notice that the optic nerve sheath diameter is 7 millimeters. Okay, so that's raised. So, anything greater than 6 millimeters is, is raised. So Correct. That makes me worried about papillodema in a young man with hypertension. During all this scanning, he starts to say, you know what, I'm, can I get a painkiller for my headache? It's, it's, it's been banging for a while now. So, what we might do is we'll... Um, place an IV line and while we're there we'll take our usual blood test that we'll take that we always take um, and we'll give him some IV analgesia so what blood test do you want anything specific so we'll do a full blood count we'll look at a renal profile a liver profile we'll do a coagulation screen and a group and cross match and we'll send it to your opponent as well why not I'll ask the nurse to perform an ECG as well and uh, ECG shows uh, normal sinus rhythm and so of normal for the rate uh, narrow complex no ST segment deviation uh, normal axis and again no evidence of LVH and considering that John is, is raising his hand saying actually can I go to the loo perfect opportunity to, to get a urine sample and we want to check that urine for, uh, for proteinuria anything else you want to check that urine for we, we've got very kind of uh let's say nuanced views on urine toxins here on this podcast but i suppose if we're getting the drop we, we might as well dip it and see if there's any uh if there's any cocaine or sympathomimetics in there won't we sounds like a good idea what's on that uh what's on that urine sample so he actually has two plus of protein no blood no leukocytes no nitrites moving on to disability and so he was talking to me earlier so we'll do a quick gcs and what are we getting there yeah he, he's actually having a laugh with you the whole time he, he's pretty orientated perfect we'll check his pupils he Equal and reactive, both three plus. Great. And while we were placing an IV, we took a venous blood gas. So we'll have a look at the, the glucose on that. And his glucose is 5.8. And I'll do a quick, brief neurological assessment. Any any obvious limb weakness or facial droop or anything that I'm picking up? Nothing there. grossly obvious. So we'll move on to exposure and check his temperature. Temp is 36.7. Great. And has he got any obvious bruising or anything that I can see? No bruising, full exposure. Can't see anything. There's, there's no uh, obvious uh, anatomical deformities he is pointing as i said to the left uh, renal angle great so at this point i usually like to take a little step back and just have a look at the patient overall and just work out in my head am i worried about this guy or what does he look like is like you know is he pale is he sweaty he is sweaty he's 
not pale. Okay. So taking that step back is a kind of a really good move, Barry. So I suppose it gives you a chance to put together all the bits of information that you have and try and work out some differentials in your head. So summarize what's going on for us and let us in on your thinking. Yeah. So this is a young man in his 30s who's come to us with high blood pressure, evidence of raised intracranial pressure, headache, palpitations, sweaty. Uh, I'm, I'm worried about this guy. And he's had a collapse. Mm-hmm which may or may not be associated with uh, trauma playing rugby. So so my number one worry here is uh, is a, an aortic dissection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So probably the first thing I'm, I'm thinking about is uh, a CT angiogram of his aorta. This is a man with a headache, uh, papilledema, high blood pressure, also want a CT of his brain to, to see if he's got a bleed there as well. He's also got some evidence of end organ dysfunction in that he's, in the context of hypertension, in that he's got papilledema. So I'm also thinking about... A hypertensive emergency here so this is something that we need to get on and treat yeah absolutely so what's your next steps then barry um how is how are you gonna generate some differentials to think about what's going on so it's at this point that um your patient asks he goes it's actually time for my blood pressure medications can i take them so he's got a background history of hypertension uh, so i'll ask him a bit more about that so what does he take when was it diagnosed so he's on an ace inhibitor for the last six months and um, he informs you that he had a thyroidectomy three years ago and has been feeling a little off for the last few weeks maybe into the last two months is there any family history of any medical conditions he has a bit of a head scratch and he says there's a couple of cancers in the family. He's not sure where, but he thinks kidney. So I want to know more about this thyroidectomy. This is a young man who presents with hypertension with a history of a thyroidectomy. So that makes me think of the endocrinopathies and maybe he's got mm. a MEN2A syndrome or something interesting like that. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't remember why he had the thyroidectomy. He can't remember the pernickety details. He was told he had a mass in the thyroid. Okay, so the family history of cancers and his history as well can just add another element um, to this case. So, you know, we've had, we had some thoughts as to what might be going on before, but does this change your thinking at all, Barry? So this doesn't change my immediate management in the emergency department. It does, however, greatly broaden my differentials. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to have to be thinking about a lot a lot of more different things than we would have yeah so we'll take another little step back here and we'll just broadly say this is a young man who's presented to us with a collapse in the context of trauma we've subsequently found him to be hypertensive he's got evidence of multiple end organ dysfunction and a history of thyroidectomy and potentially an endocrinopathy which might be familiar given this his family history mm-hmm. okay all right um what are your uh, what are your next steps so I want to urgently arrange uh, some CT scans for this for this man. Uh, mm-hmm. He's going to get a non-con CT brain and a CT angiogram of his aorta, looking for a dissection or a cerebral bleed. So radiology have okayed th- those scans and they'll call for him as soon as the scanner is up and running. Perfect. So in the meantime, I'm going to place an arterial line and we're going to start treating this blood pressure. So my first go-to drug here is, is going to be libidolol. Obviously, I'm going to stick to the hospital guidelines here. So usually this is going to involve boluses of libidolol and we'll titrate to response. Plus minus an infusion um, if that's deemed necessary after the boluses, I suppose. Okay, so the blood pressure is starting to come down and that uh, diaphoresis is slowly resolving. He's looking a little more comfortable. He's looking a little more reassured. Um, his respiration is back to normal and he's looking a little freer in his movements. That pain is no longer there. Excellent. So he was called for the scan, went down, got 
all the scans that you mentioned, and the CT brain revealed no acute intracranial abnormality. His aorta was of normal caliber and showed no pathology throughout. On the abdominal portion of the aortogram, however, it did note a left-sided adrenal mass and clinical correlation was advised. This is getting very, very interesting. So now we're going to think again about our, our endocrinopathies. Yeah, so what are we thinking specifically now? So in this, in this case, sometimes the hooves do mean zebra. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. pheochromocytoma. Yeah, absolutely. So is, is this a definitive diagnosis of pheochromocytoma? No. Okay, so what, what do we need to definitively diagnose this? So this is where you'll need a 24-hour urine collection. So mm-hmm. you're going to look at the uh, 24-hour catecholamines and metanephrines. Are we going to do that in rhesus? No, I think we'll leave that to the medical team on call. Yeah, yeah, no, I think we'll, we'll, we'll let them know about it at this point anyways. And I'm sure they'll be very, very excited to, um, to, to work this patient up. Not many of us have seen too many of these um, over the years. So that's, uh, so that's great. Perfect. So that was a very well-managed case, Barry. Well done. Thanks very much. You pass. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> very good. Okay, so I, I suppose this is something that we'll have heard lots and lots about uh, in college, in med school, but it's not something that we see a whole lot of in clinical practice. Um, I suppose it's kind of, you know, disproportionately represented in exams. Um, I, I think that's kind of probably true across across specialties. Um, definitely not unique to, uh, to to emergency medicine. But I suppose it kind of falls into the bracket of hypertensive emergencies. And that's something we see a lot of in emergency departments. Like, I don't think you'll go through a week without, um, without having an extremely hypertensive patient come into you. You know, while the actual pheochromocytoma is an unusual diagnosis to, um, to make, especially in the emergency departments, the management of it as a hypertensive emergency, it's part of our bread and butter, you know? The endpoint is different. The road is the same. That's it. Exactly. So, Talking about our hypertensive emergencies, you know, just to kind of get a definition in our heads, Carl, can you talk to us about numbers, first of all? So I would always kind of follow the Oxford Handbook of Emergency Medicine, and the number that always sticks out to me would be a diastolic blood pressure of 125 millimeters of mercury. Yeah, no, I'm kind of the same because like, and again, just from from reading the Oxford Handbook uh, ad nauseum, that's kind of the number that uh, that always pops into my head, first of all, as well. But it's not all about the numbers, is it? No, you're dead right. So if the diastolic is greater than that, you have a hypertensive emergency. Mm -hmm. However, if you have a blood pressure lower than that and end organ dysfunction you still have a hypertensive emergency you treat the patient not the numbers absolutely like you know a kind of a situation that pops into our minds like almost straight away with that sort of scenario is the preeclamptic patient you know like evidence of end, end organ dysfunction makes it an emergency you know it's it's not about the numbers at all and that's kind of one of many many different etiologies that can precipitate this uh, this presentation so you know you can have your essential hypertensions and then secondary hypertension which can be any of god knows how many different things but you know what are the what are the main things that we need to think about i suppose my number one is drugs 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 i want to make sure if it's a sympathomimetic toxidrome that we're dealing with because it really does change my management other things that you'd want to consider are the endocrinopathies which we can go into later we need to also think about a cardiac cause um we need to think about a renovascular cause as well um so they're all different things to consider or as barry had 
a rule to dissection would be very high on your exactly. list. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Barry, you work that patient up very, very well. But when you're kind of approaching a hypertensive emergency in general, what um, what investigations would you do and what would you kind of have in your head? So the basic things in the emergency department you want to do is uh, check the, the urinalysis. So you're looking for blood and protein. You're going to do a chest x-ray. You're going to look for pulmonary edema or a widened mediastinum that might make you suspect a dissection. You're going to do your ECG and you, you might find some left ventricular hypertrophy. There might be some ischemic changes there. You could send cardiac enzymes. You can do a full blood count with a with a blood film. And what you're looking for here is, again, one of the secondary causes. So something like a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And then you'll send your routine clinical chemistry. So you're looking at your renal profile for something like a glomerulonephritis, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's any number of different renal causes that can, uh, that, that, that can cause this as well. And then I suppose um, other specific investigations that you'd use when you're thinking about specific etiologies then what would you um what would you have in mind so using this case as an example someone the hypertensive patient with headache you're looking for a hemorrhage yeah so i suppose another thing that you might be able to see on uh, ct is evidence of a hypertensive encephalopathy again you mightn't see it on the ct um mri is more sensitive for this but if you do see anything you might see some edema and it's typically involves the cerebellum, the brainstem, basal ganglia, and I suppose that kind of gives it the acronym PRES for posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. And again, just important to know that this is a reversible encephalopathy. So you just need to treat the, treat the cause and get that blood pressure under control. So I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll cover this again in more detail in a segment down the line, but um, let's talk a bit about point of care ultrasound and how it can help us in this case to look for end organ dysfunction and to i suppose assess for some of uh, some some possible causes of the uh, hypertensive emergency yeah so in this case we looked at the lungs so we were looking for pulmonary edema we looked at the heart so you can do an echo you can look for evidence of dissection with your apical four chamber view you could also do a supersternal view you might see a dissection flap there uh, you're looking at the aorta itself and we also did an inocular ultrasound in which we found uh, papilledema in this guy yeah and i suppose if you're if you're proficient enough with it you could have a look at the uh, the renal arteries as well um and see if there's a renal vascular cause for the hypertension absolutely i'm definitely not there yet but hopefully so, hopefully someday <laughs> one of these days then in terms of management my choice of medication for management is really rationalized by what I think has caused the hypertension in the first place. But overall, the aim is to get the blood pressure lower. You don't want to drop the blood pressure too much too fast. What I would aim for would be probably no more than 10 to 20% in the first hour. So I suppose that is a good principle to have in mind, but just to be careful of chasing after arbitrary endpoints with too much uh, zeal, I suppose. Uh, I'm, I think I'm borrowing this term from Josh Farkas, but the uh, the goose chasing principle kind of applies here. Um, it's just important to know that there isn't a whole load of evidence behind these um, behind these targets. And well, it's good to try and achieve them to um, to lower the patient's blood pressure. It's important just to note that you shouldn't go too hard trying to chase an arbitrary endpoint um, at at the risk of harming the patient as well but um i suppose a question i have is where does where does amlodipine come in our treatment algorithm it doesn't oh okay all right 
So yeah, so you'll notice we at no point did we mention amlodipine during our uh, our case discussion. Probably one of the most common bleep calls for an, an intern on call would be to chart something for for hypertension. Um, so keep in mind that when you're when you're asked to prescribe these drugs, so the the stat of amlodipine is going to work well has an onset of action anywhere from six to twelve hours. There might be an, a tendency to prescribe another agent after your initial five milligrams hasn't worked so you get to maybe eight hours down the line when all of the agents that you've used all come together to drastically lower the blood pressure as carl has mentioned earlier which we 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 didn't want to do in the first place and these patients have adapted to a higher blood pressure basal state so if you drop it too fast you can precipitate adverse events like a stroke like barry said you know the the onset of action is not predictable for these uh, medications you're going to end up giving several doses and the doses are going to stack and you're going to have an unpredictable response so my line on this is if the patient is in their emergency department and they've got a hypertensive emergency they're not getting an oral agent for that and if they're in the emergency department and their hypertension is not a hypertensive emergency, they don't need treatment for it in the emergency department. So what agent are we going to choose? Barry, in his case, chose the Beetle, and I think that was absolutely the top-notch answer for that one. Almost like he knew what it was going to be. <laughs> it's almost like he's done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so why was the Beetle a good choice? In this situation, given the ultimate diagnosis of a pheochromocytoma, um, Lubigilol is a beta blocker with selective alpha blocking capabilities. We'll discuss this a little later. Other agents that could be considered are GTN or nitroglycerin. This affects venodilatation rather than arteriodilatation, has a rapid onset and offset and increases coronary flow. However, it can cause tachycardia. It is the drug of choice in patients with cardiac ischemia and is commonly used in stroke with hypertension. Alternatively, we could use sodium nitroprusside. Oh. <laughs> so sodium nitroprusside has a very short half-life. It's about one to two minutes. Um, it affects arterial dilatation rather than venous. Sounds good so far. <laughs> it's effective. It has a rapid onset and offset again. However... You can get some interesting adverse outcomes from it. It can cause a cyanide toxicity. Just just while we're on the topic, what would you give for uh, cyanide toxicity, Barry? So your standard or gold standard of treatment here is uh, hydroxycobalamin. Okay, very good. Any other issues with this drug, Carl? I've got a feeling there's something else. It can cause a tachycardia. It can cause a coronary steel syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose causing some coronary hyperperfusion is definitely not what we're looking for with our uh, with our treatment agents so so i i say it's probably safe to uh, to avoid nitroprusside uh, for these patients if we can and i suppose just to, just to come back to um to labetalol uh, you'd mentioned that it was a good fit for uh, the pheochromocytoma why is that so labetalol was uh, the optimum drug of choice in this situation because because of that um beta blockade with selective alpha blocker and what, what would be the issue with just a beta blocker 
That's a good question. So if you administer a beta blocker or a sole beta blocker to a patient with a pheochromocytoma, you can precipitate an unopposed alpha adrenergic response, precipitating a massive tachycardia that you're running into other issues that then need resolution. We treat with an alpha blocker initially and in the lead up to surgery, patients will be covered with an alpha blocker, subsequently followed by a beta blocker. So libetalol has beta and alpha blockade properties. Um, which is great for pheos and what else drugs 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 you could have a a severe hypertension secondary to cocaine and that is another situation where you do not want unopposed alpha adrenergic action we'll give a we'll give us we'll give a special mention just to one of our alpha blockers and fentolamine you can use that for a catecholamine induced hypertension as well but just again thing to remember and in, in, in that scenario is not to use a beta blocker monotherapy we'll put a table with kind of other options for treatment in the show notes med twitter is going to explode with team phenoxybenzamines not getting the mention right so let's talk about pheos then in particular so that's kind of how we're going to manage our hypertensive emergencies generally speaking and again up to this point up to treatment um you're going to manage them kind of all very similarly we we, we just diverge when it comes to the specific treatment options but tell us about uh, tell us a bit more about uh pheochromocytomas so with finals coming up for the med students let's follow the typical oxford handbook description of the weird and wonderfuls so it's a tumor of the adrenal glands 85 to 90 percent of them are benign in nature they usually affect the 30 to 50 year olds 10 percent are found in children overall this is a rare condition it affects 0.05 percent of the general population it's a little bit higher it's 0.1 to 0.6 in the hypertensive population but it can affect all ages about 30 percent of them are genetic it can be associated with von Hippel-Lindau disease, neurofibromatosis type 1, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, or hereditary paraganglioma syndrome, which is 24 points in Scrabble. The key thing I think we'll all remember from med school here is the rule of 10s. 10% are extra adrenal, as in outside of the adrenals. 10% are bilateral, 10% are malignant, 10% are found in children, 10% are familial. 10% are not associated with hypertension and 10% contain calcification. 10% of you listen to all of that. I'm in the 90%. <laughs> so how does this present? And it's typical of that case that we just had. So you would have your typical triad of headache, palpitations and diaphoresis all in the setting of hypertension. Um, you could also have some dizziness, constipation, tremors, shortness of breath, could have abdominal pain such as our gentleman had and you may present with vomiting or the, the vague presenters such as weight loss or anxiety and it's easy to mark down an episode to anxiety but you want to make sure there's no organic cause for these presentations. So some things can trigger your hypertensive crises in the setting of a feel and these could be manual pressure beta blockers as we've discussed some physical activity emotional stress childbirth which i don't think our gentleman was suffering from tyramine rich foods so your cheese your red wine your chocolate i think i'd rather have the svt and um massage can cause it so how would you diagnose it and i think the Key thing is, as we discussed, it probably won't be diagnosed in the emergency department. We may have the suspicion, but you would ideally obtain imaging. You could use either CT or MR. Sensitivity is about 93 plus percent. 
and it's similar for MRI. But you also want the biochemical diagnosis and that's testing for plasma and urine metanephrines, catecholamines and urine vanilla mandelic acid. Vanilla mandelic acid. God bless you. <laughs> and it's important to note that genetic testing would be advised in all patients given the high incidence of genetic disorders that are associated. And for ultimate management, removal of the causative mass is the end goal but you also have to consider the alpha blockade pre-op for a period of weeks and we had discussed the beta versus alpha blockade and their subsequent adverse events okay so that's um that's a pretty good rundown through our hypertensive emergencies and our theochromocytoma specifically as well what would your what would your number one takeaway from um from, from this be barry it's always fail <laughs> Okay, it's almost never fail, but, you know, I'll, I'll give you another crack at that. So my biggest takeaway from this is don't reach for the five milligram status of amlodipine because mm-hmm. it just won't work. No, no, that, that will not help, Carl. So my biggest takeaway would be treat the patient, not the numbers. So look for the end organ dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fair point as well. So the, the numbers matter, but the patient matters a whole lot more. So look, look for the signs there. Very good. Okay. I think uh, we'll wrap it up there, guys, and we'll uh, hand it over to our adult in the room. Perfect. Thanks, Emil. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Our adult in the room this month is Dr. Emer Kidney. Dr. Kidney is an emergency medicine consultant in St. James's Hospital in Dublin. She's a seasoned educator, and to her credit, she's had to suffer the three of us as learners in the past. Dr. Kidney, you have the floor. Thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast, Mo. It was quite nostalgic to hear the three of you chatting away to each other again, at least until I heard the topic. I nearly had a hypertensive emergency myself when I realized what we were going to be talking about. I think it's definitely fair to say that hypertensive emergencies are not everybody's cup of tea. Despite that, though, you did a great job going through the case. There was a lot in there. Bearing that in mind, I think it's important to remember to keep your differential broad at the start. You've got a young man who's had a collapse that's been preceded by palpitations. So the first thing that was on my mind when you started mentioning that was, is this going to be a hokum or a brigada syndrome or one of the other channelopathies? And one important point to remember is that uh, the ECG changes that you get with Brigada syndrome may be transient. So if if you're highly suspicious, as in you have the right history and the right patient, you need to consider it even if your ECG is normal. The other point that I picked out when we were going through the case was that you've got a young man who potentially has had a trauma, maybe to his neck, and then immediately collapsed afterwards. He's now complaining of renal angle tenderness. So that's just something to bear in mind um, when you considering your differential is his is his hypertension a symptom of his trauma as in is he in pain which is leading to a high blood pressure and is his pain from some other trauma be it to his neck or his abdomen and that's something to bear in mind when you're ordering your imaging and discuss with radiology whether the imaging you have ordered is going to rule out your differential so your aortic dissection but also a traumatic cause of this man's symptoms. So then moving on to talk about the hypertensive emergencies as we're all well aware true hypertensive emergencies are very rare and the vast majority of patients who present to the ED with hypertension will be fit for discharge home with appropriate safety netting and discharge advice and follow-up with their GP. How soon that follow-up needs 
needs to be will depend on the individual patient. Well done mentioning the amylodipine. That one's a particular bugbear of mine. But everyone should also remember not to forget to treat the underlying cause of someone's high blood pressure, whether it's pain, anxiety, whatever else might be causing and then be cautious with absolute numbers. Um, 120 millimeters of mercury is the number I have in my mind for a diastolic blood pressure. However, the patient is far more important than the number. If you have a young patient who has had an acute rise in their blood pressure, they will be unwell at a much lower blood pressure than someone who is older and has been chronically hypertensive. And um, because the younger person's cerebral autoregulatory mechanisms won't have had time to adjust, whereas the chronically hypertensive patients will have had time to adjust. And because of that, uh, in some people with uh, diastolic blood pressure lower than 120 millimeters of mercury, they may still be quite unwell. He rightly mentioned about lowering the blood pressure slowly um, and cautiously so that you don't run into problems such as watershed infarcts. But it's important to remember the caveats to that rule. So the three caveats to that rule that I have in my mind where you will treat the blood pressure more aggressively to a lower blood pressure target would be in the acute phase of an ischemic stroke in cases of an intracerebral hemorrhage and an acute aortic dissection. We could spend all day talking about the choice of antihypertensive, but I think the Labetalol was a good choice given that it had some alpha blockade as well and is generally speaking relatively safe. The most important thing is probably that whatever drug you're using is the one you should be familiar with. It's probably worth noting that if the diagnosis of a failed chromocytoma had been confirmed before you were starting treatment, you probably wouldn't choose Labetalol. You'd choose something with pure alpha blockade as your first agent. But certainly in this case where the diagnosis is not completely clear, I, I, I agree with you decision to use Libetol, I'd probably have used that too. I had only one final point to note about the use of point-of-care ultrasound. The point-of-care ultrasound is an extremely useful tool as long as it's used in the right setting with the right patient and by the right person and for the right reason. So I suppose anytime you're going to pick up the ultrasound machine, I think you should always ask, will this alter my management and what are the potential negative consequences? So for example, in this case, doing an optic nerve ultrasound, if it was normal, he was going to be getting a CT brain and if it was abnormal he was still going to be getting a CT brain so will it have altered our management I don't think so will it have had any negative impact on the patient I suppose that depends on on how you're using it so as long as your CT is ordered and if you're having a look while you're waiting to put end CT well then no it's not going to have any negative impact but if you're going to spend five or ten minutes doing the optic nerve ultrasound and then think about ordering the CT then I suppose that is delaying time to definitive imaging in order to perform a test that isn't going to change your management so so I just, I just be cautious with the use of, of point of care ultrasound for that particular reason in this case. So that's enough from me. Thank you for inviting me on and hopefully we'll get to see you again soon in the not too distant future. Oh, okay. Breathe. Time to relieve some of that pressure now. To help us do that, we have got, back by popular demand, Dr. Una Kennedy, who is here to talk to us about our well-being around this stressful exam period. Dr. Kennedy is an EM consultant in St. James's Hospital, a human factors and patient safety rep with ICEMT. She sits on the Arkham Sustainable Work Practices Committee, and she co-authored the Arkham Wellness Compendium, something you all definitely need to pick up and read. And chatting to Dr. Kennedy is our very own Dr. Deirdre Breslin. Deirdre is the Case.Report's Geriatric Emergency Medicine Production Lead, so you'll be hearing from her again soon and also sits on the IAMTA committee as the well-being officer. Take it away, Dee. 
So, Dr. Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Case Report. We're delighted to have you back to speak to us again about well-being. As we mentioned to you, the episode is focused really on exam preparation, and with that in mind, we were wondering if you would give us some of your best tips for managing well-being around exams and in the lead-up to examinations. Sure. Well, Deirdre, first of all, thanks a million for having me back. It's an absolute pleasure, and congratulations to you and the team on on all your work and, and your fantastic productions that you've done in the interim since I was with you on the first episode. In terms of exam preparation, I guess, or in the lead up to exams, the obvious pillars of lifestyle medicine or the pillars of well-being are things that we need to continue to be aware of and really proactively manage things like our sleep, nutrition, physical activity, exercise, watching in terms of you know caffeine and alcohol, our consumption. But also I think there's things in terms of our mindset, what we can do in terms of being proactive rather than reactive um, and controlling the controllables in our relationships and social connections, our stress management, managing anxiety and, and staying optimistic. So there's some physical things and I think some psychological things that we could work on in the lead up to an exam or any stressful period that you anticipate in your life. Absolutely. So there's obviously huge amounts to to touch on there. And, and unfortunately, we probably won't have time to go into them as much as we'd like to today. It's really interesting. You're talking about being proactive instead of being reactive. Could you tell me a little bit more about that or what you mean by that? Sure. Well, that's really about the control mindset and identifying what you can control. Uh, I suppose one of my favorite things that I've been listening to recently the Irish hockey team are, are preparing for the Olympic Games and, and um, it's the first time that they've qualified. It's a, been a very long journey for them to get there. And then, of course, COVID happened and the, the Games have been postponed and, and there's been an awful lot of uncertainty for them. And if you listen to any of the girls anytime they're interviewed, you'll hear them say this repeatedly. We have to control what we can control. So they can't control what's going to happen with the Games, but they can control their own preparation in terms of their mindsets and you know their physical preparation and obviously their competitive preparation for the game so if you can put all the things that are worrying you if you write them down in a page on a circle and if you put on the outside bits of the circle the things that you have no control of and then in the middle of the circle write down the things that you have control over and that's your circle of influence this is a tip from Steve Covey who wrote the, the seven habits of highly successful people people who are reactive focus on the things they can't control the things on the outside of the circle but people who are proactive focus on the things on the inside of the inside circle and that's the things that you have control over. So control the controllables and let somebody else worry about the things that you've now control over. You know, in terms of controlling what we can control and and being proactive, have you any tips for how people can approach exams in a positive way and, and think positively in, in terms of stressful situations? Yeah, well, one of the ways of examining things is, is by people's mindsets and how people approach a challenge. And somebody who has a growth mindset is somebody whose reaction to a failure is by saying not yet. So I haven't got that. I haven't figured that out. I haven't learned it yet, but I, I will learn. So they embrace challenges. So when th- something bad happens, they fail an exam or something, they can't learn something or get on top of a new topic. Rather than just saying, I'm rubbish. Um, this is beyond me. This is too difficult. And um, I'm not smart enough for this. They frame it differently and change their mindset to uh, learning from the mistakes or learning from whatever happened and having what we call a growth mindset and using that growth mindset to come back and embrace the challenge and say okay well I haven't learned it yet but I'm going to use the learning from the mistakes or from what went wrong and turn that around to enable me to to grow and develop and eventually to succeed. 
So it's rather than catastrophizing over not not getting something, it's just by looking at it saying, well, I haven't got it yet. It's that not yet bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and obviously, it strikes me that it's something that's obviously not just important in terms of examinations, but hugely important in terms of day to day in medicine and personal development, something that's going to be relevant the whole way through your emergency medicine career, I would say. Absolutely. Um, and staying optimistic, you know, thinking that you, there's good times yet to come and, and stick with it. It's having that tenacity and grit as well to stick with something when it, when it's a challenge rather than walking away from a challenge. For sure. For sure. Okay, so that's a great place to start. Obviously, we all have different strengths and different areas that we're going to excel at. Um, is there a way to kind of, I suppose, bring those out of ourselves or focus on them? Absolutely. So there's a website called viacharacter.org and the VIA in Via Character stands for Values and Actions. And there you can take a free test. There's 25 signature strengths um, and we all have those strengths to greater or lesser degrees. But if you can identify what your four to five signature strengths are and then proactively use them, they represent the real you in inverted commas, those signature strengths. And so if you can use them both in your personal life and in your professional life, and um, you feel excited when you discover what they are and use them and you learn quicker if you're using one of your signature strengths and when you're using your strengths you feel invigorated rather than exhausted so rather than things feeling as if they're you know a challenge or, or dreary or dull they actually excite and invigorate you so identifying what your personal signature strengths are and also it's interesting to to know what the signature strengths of those around you are uh, be it your loved ones or your your colleagues and enabling the people around you to work and live using their their strengths then everybody starts to, to thrive on that so it doesn't take that long to do the test it takes maybe I don't know 15 or 20 minutes and it's an interesting um, insight into your personality but also and um, it's something that I think will help you to in your work and your personal life yeah absolutely not just uh, relevant for the upcoming exams but something you can bring forward what else would you recommend in terms of self-care and well-being if you're finding the time stressful then I don't think anyone goes through an exam and, and doesn't find it stressful people say oh you know, you should meditate or and meditation and uh, mindfulness practice are without doubt fantastic stress reducers. But I guess I would also say if there's something, if you have something in your toolkit already, uh, use that. So that could be, there's evidence for all sorts of stress reduction techniques, everything from chewing gum to going for a forest bath, a walk in nature, to laughing and connecting with friends, singing in a choir. So whatever it is that you use, exercise obviously is, is another one. Whatever it is that you find that can reduce stress is obviously something that you're going to need to take out of your toolbox at times before an exam. I know I, I can be guilty sometimes of trying to take on new ways of relieving stress in the run-up to an exam and sometimes you just need to stick with with what you know rather than yeah. adding extra pressure to yourself by uh, trying to trying to relax in new ways and obviously connecting with friends and family hugely important and keeping in touch with positive relationships yeah so i mean the in, in the perma model of, of psychological well-being that that's an acronym for p or ma where p is positive emotions e is engagement or flow and we can come back to that separately or is relationships a positive uh, relationship um, is meaning and A is accomplishment but those positive social connections um, are so important uh, in the lead up to an exam and you know that may be the connections that you have with your classmates those who are going through the same stressful process that you're going through or it may be with that one person in your life who gives you strength at times of stress you know friends family whatever it is and, and it is obviously particularly challenging during COVID when we've been told to 
to stay physically apart, but it is important to actively maintain those social connections and cultivate those relationships at times of stress. And when, when I was reading an interesting study where they had walking meetings, and so this was in the context of exercise for, for well-being and cognitive function, and they were saying that having walking meetings increases creative thinking by 60%. So you know, going out with your friends, so taking a break from your study and meeting up for a walk and going through a study topic while you're walking would be a great way to, you know, you get some exercise, get some fresh air, get some natural daylight, you see a friend and have some social connections. Um, but also if you study a topic that way, it would improve your ability to think and, and hopefully to retain that information. So um, something like that that ticks a lot of the boxes at once, if you're going to multitask, that, that would be a good tip to, to take, I think. Yeah, very effective use of time. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so so you brought a little bit about exercise in there. And obviously, um, we know that that's going to really be beneficial all the time but but especially to keep a little bit of exercise going when you're getting ready for an exam something that I always kind of link in my mind with exercise would be diet I presume that that's going to be uh, beneficial to, to have a healthy diet as well absolutely and again there's new evidence there's a study that just out this year that's showing um that there's this the concept of the gut brain access and access and the um the benefits of having a healthy microbiome and there's a study this year showing that probiotic treatment improved cognition in human and animals so again it's one of those nutrition is going to hit a couple of different uh, pillars as well in terms of um, your physical well-being but also your cognition so in terms of nutrition it's minimizing high carb high fat high sugar processed foods trying to keep things as close to nature as possible minimally processed there's a harvard healthy plate that they describe which is a plate if you imagine a plate 50% of it should be fruit and vegetables. 25% should be whole grains like whole grain rice or quinoa, something like that. And then 25% should be healthy proteins, avoiding meat where possible. So plant proteins, um, ideally, or, or fish, eggs, lean meat um, as well. So just being aware, I guess, you know, it's not the time to start revamping all your habits um, at once, but just to be aware of the impact of nutrition and the knock-on effects of that in your ability to study, your ability to function and your ability to sleep. It's all, as I say, all of this is interconnected, I think. Mm, yeah. And, and again, as part of diet, I suppose, trying to avoid stimulants, even though it's tempting to be driving yourself on coffee through exams, I, I presume it's it's not beneficial. <laughs> no, so, um, you know, they say that you should, you can enjoy caffeine, but enjoy your caffeine before noon. But using stimulants as a as a way to, to keep yourself up and alert um, is going to wreak havoc in terms of, of your sleep. So even if you're somebody who says, oh, well, I'm, I'm exhausted at night, I'm sitting so hard, I'll fall asleep without any problem, the quality of your sleep will be impacted by the caffeine consumption so by all means enjoy your caffeine but do it uh, before noon early in the day okay that's one good tip for getting your, your sleep as, as good as possible are there any other ways to uh, really get quality sleep rather than quantity sleep I suppose oh well I think you need both unfortunately so it is tempting at all as it is this isn't the time uh, to take uh, shortcuts in terms of sleep um, and again I mean there's very compelling evidence in terms of sleep consolidating memory so in terms of if you're studying sleep improving lateral thinking there's a really nice study where they gave people a, a test to do but they they had sleep deprived subjects and non-sleep deprived subjects but they put a, a piece out of out of left field on it um, to test people's lateral thinking um, and the people who had who were sleep deprived didn't pick up on the the extra bit of the test so your your ability to your decision making and your lateral thinking skills are improved with 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 sleep and it is quantity as well as quality so in terms of quantity they say you know seven to nine hours 
and it depends on on the individuals. So some people can get away with seven. More of us tend towards the eight or nine hours, and that's that's time asleep. That's not time in bed. So it's not the time that you lie in bed awake trying to get to sleep. If you're somebody who takes twenty to thirty minutes to get to sleep, you need to factor that in um, into your your sleep time. Um, in terms of quality of sleep, the the big things I guess in modern life is blue light and, and phones and gadgets. Uh, in the hour or two before bed. So not only do they impact on your ability to get to sleep, again, if you're that person who says, I can fall asleep without any problem, um, unfortunately, the quality of your sleep will be impacted by uh, your consumption of technology in the hour to two before you go to bed. So that blue light blocks melatonin, which is what tells our body to go to sleep, but it also impacts on your quality of sleep. Alcohol, again, is another one. It is a sedative. It helps people to relax, but it does impact on the quality of your sleep. And you don't remember the the times that you wake up during the night having consumed alcohol. So it's one to be avoided because really sleep quality and quantity are, if I had to say, the, the one most important thing coming up to exams. Being somebody who's been guilty of studying late and getting up early in the morning to, to study, it's, it's not a good idea. It's really thinking about sleep as an opportunity as opposed to a cost. So saying that extra hour, don't feel that that extra hour of sleep is a cost to your evening. Consider that extra hour of sleep as an investment in, in your study time um, on the following day. It, it's also going to improve your mood. So it's there's great evidence for sleep and impact on mood and anxiety. Um, and it also impacts on, on your food choices. So people who are sleep deprived tend to go for high carb, high sugar food so again if you it's all all of these things are interlinked so if you sleep better you'll think better you'll learn better and you'll eat better as well so the other thing about sleep is is the the thought about naps so naps consolidate learning so that's so sleep consolidates learning and that's one of the reasons why people may nap when they're trying to study coming up to an exam so again napping can be good when you're studying just to be careful about duration and time of your nap so not to sleep for more than 30 minutes and not to nap after 3 p.m. in the in the afternoon because it can impact on your ability to sleep that night so okay. nap, naps are potentially really good for learning but just to be careful about uh, again time and duration of naps so keep them to power naps only basically power naps early in the day early in the day okay i'll have to cut out my afternoon naps <laughs> that's that's a really good way of thinking about it i like that thinking of sleep as an opportunity not a cost because I, I think it is something that a lot of us certainly have, have been guilty of and maybe learned the hard way from uh, you know cutting back on sleep when when you're in a stressful time excellent okay well that's really useful uh, information thanks so much would you have any resources that you would recommend for people who want to learn a bit more about this or any starting steps that people could take to learn about their well-being absolutely in terms of physical well-being and, and the topics that we've discussed about physical activity sleep nutrition i think uh, rangan chatterjee's books uh, and his podcast feel better live more where he has he's interviewed some of the uh, leading experts in these areas for example he's he's i think he's got three interviews with matthew walker who has written why we sleep which is an excellent book on on sleep science and understanding sleep and he's got some fantastic episodes on on the podcast i mean there's about 150 odd i think at this stage so i'd I'd recommend um, his podcast in terms of learning a little bit more about prema that i mentioned and psychological well-being martin seligman who's sort of seen as the founder of positive psychology has written a book called flourish he describes perma um, and its elements in in more detail you can go to his website on the university of pennsylvania authentichappiness.org and take a test on each of the the five elements of perma and get a score on how you how you score on each of those elements um, and there's some t- tips in terms of how to develop those areas of psychological well-being and then i've just 
or I'm halfway through my diploma in positive health in the Department of Positive Psychology and Health in RCSI. And on their website, they have loads of free articles and they've got some podcast interviews from their My Health series, which are really excellent and well worth um, having a look at. And, and they also have um, some courses that are designed for, for the public as well that I would that I have actually recommended to my family and would recommend that uh, people have a look at as well. That's fantastic. Um, so I suppose to, to summarize your, your top five tips for surviving exams and maximizing your well-being obviously you said sleep was was top of your list is that right yeah sleep is top of my list exercise watch what you eat have a stress reduction technique be that i mean i think there's nothing quite like meditation but if meditation isn't for you uh, find the stress reduction technique that works works for you and then just be aware of your mindset control what you can be aware of what your strengths are and and use them Uh, manage your anxiety and stay optimistic and good luck. <laughs> As always, just important to mention that if, if people do feel they're struggling, it's so important to talk to someone. There is help available. I mean, you should have a GP. Every we, and, and all doctors need a GP. Um, all medical students need a GP. Go and see your GP if things are getting too much for you. Talk to your friends. If you find a trusted person to talk to but get help and get help early if things are becoming a little bit too much for you that's that's brilliant thank you so much dr kennedy it was great to have you on the podcast again thanks Deirdre. pleasure to have been with you this morning for our last segment this month callum's back with another installment of the echo chamber Hi there, so today on the Echo Chamber, I'm delighted to be joined by Natalie Krakowski, who's the ex-chair of UCC's Emergency Care Society and someone I've uh, encountered a few times because she's arranged really fantastic events for their society. So I want to talk to her today about those events and get some advice for medical students who want to really stretch the, the boundaries of what they're taught whilst an undergrad and uh, take on and learn some, some extra things. So thanks so much for joining me, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Callum. I hope I'm able to provide you guys with a little bit of advice or uh, experience of what we've had over at UCC. Yeah, so it's a great society from everything I've encountered. You guys are really active. Can you talk me through a few of the things you did while you were president? Sure. So we did a, a wide variety of events. We kind of followed themes to try to explain to and and show the students that, that emergency medicine wasn't only in the emergency department, that it uh, spans across all fields of medicine. So we hosted events with pediatric emergencies. We hosted events that taught our students hands-on resuscitation for burn victims, high altitude sickness, drowning victims. We took a group of students out to a workshop out in Mayo where we joined an established group called Wilderness Medicine and we learned how to basically manage patients in in low resource settings when they're out in the wild on excursions. We are always doing Sim Wars training. So last year we would have hosted Sim Wars Nationals for the second time in a row where we have teams across the different universities coming together to compete in simulation emergency medicine settings. One of our highlighted events last year was uh, the repeat of an ultrasound workshop where we had several experts in ultrasound come and give us hands-on teaching on the use of ultrasound in the emergency department and outside of the emergency department, but really just to give us exposure on how to hold the ultrasound, what to look for, how to ask 
ultrasound specific questions and just get a bit more exposure in an area that we normally wouldn't have in our medical school curricula. Yeah, it's fantastic. And there's a huge amount of enthusiasm amongst the students, which I was really impressed by uh, when I was teaching on that ultrasound event. And do you think their, their needs or their desires to be learning about emergency medicine is underserved in the traditional medical curricula? I certainly know when I was a student, we, we hardly got any emergency medicine teaching that I can remember. I understand they're not going to be teaching wilderness medicine anytime soon, but do you think they scope to, to have more emergency medicine included in the curricula? I definitely do. I think that when you originally talk about emergency medicine to medical school colleagues, they might initially shy away and say, oh, I don't like the um, uh, high adrenaline setting, so therefore emergency medicine is not for me, until they start to realize that actually emergency medicine will be in all areas of practice, um, regardless of what specialty they go to, including if they go down a general practitioner's route, you will have to recognize and be able to do the initial management of an emergency case. So there's already like that initial lack of even understanding what emergency medicine is and how it fits into whatever scope that they go into. Then when they do start to realize how exciting and cool it is, they realize that they would like to have a bit more hands-on training and specific techniques of management that uh, you'd find in emergency medicine, namely ultrasound. Yeah, for sure. And I, I always found it amazing that we didn't get taught as much how to kind of assess an ill person, critically ill person, because as an intern, that's actually something you do quite a lot and you're called to the wards and you're the first person there who has to make an assessment of someone who's unwell and decide you know, how much to escalate it and what, what treatments to give them. Um, so it's, it's great that you guys are showing so much initiative. And I wanted to pick your brains because a lot of students listening to this and for people in different universities or coming up through the, the years, what advice would you give for students wanting to create these learning opportunities that are, that are not currently there and host workshops and uh, invite speakers, external speakers to give them? Um, well, first, uh, first advice is if... Um... If you think you're interested in something, if you think that you're lacking um, training in a specific field, whether it be hands-on or, or whether it be a theoretical uh, topic, you're probably not alone. So if you feel like there's a need, all your colleagues are potentially also feeling the need. And if they don't have the need, once once the opportunity presents itself, they might realize it's the thing that they always needed that they never had. So with that being said, like I would Definitely follow your enthusiasm of whatever it is you have in creating an event. It, it can be a daunting task in the beginning if you don't have a blueprint to follow, but really it takes like a few structured, organized emails, uh, some professionalism and reach out to the doctors who um, have the skills and knowledge. Ask them if they have the time and they're willing to come together with you and a few students and, you know, start small, see how it's received, and then you can easily expand and you pop, and you most likely will expand because the yearning among the medical students for these types of skills and extra workshops, practicals, is pretty high. Don't let the the task of it not being done before in whatever capacity you have in mind, like be the barrier to just holding you back from giving it a go and did you find that people were generally receptive to helping you out or was it a challenge to recruit people um i was extremely delighted with how uh receptive you know either the nchds or the consultants were i think that 
they the doctors always responded with like a very pleasant level of enthusiasm to want to help students and teach them some more than others but like I was pleasantly you know surprised across the majority of my um experiences of and like and it was so um inspiring to see how much the doctors were willing to give up their free time to come and teach us for free basically of course we give them a little goodie basket afterwards but that's that's not really a, that's not really a compensation for a doctor it's just a small token of uh, gratitude but like they would be so excited to get out there and come and teach us and so it was really refreshing it didn't feel like we had to like pull teeth and and beg them to come and and um and help uh, teach us. Yeah, I think uh, doctors are humans and they respond to enthusiasm in kind. So you guys are so uh, motivated and committed and enthusiastic yourselves that it's a real pleasure to, to help you out. And I, I've done a couple of events, but I know there's been lots of different people involved and they, they all think the same, I think. Um, it's just a pleasure to, to help you guys because you're so enthusiastic to start with. Have you got any um, uh, top piece of advice for a student wanting to um, organize an event? Top piece of advice. Make a checklist, figure out exactly what you're going to need to do to get it accomplished. Ideally, you would have a partner. I always have a partner going through all of my event planning. Unfortunately, she couldn't be with us today, but her name is Clara Steele. And um, having a partner is really helpful because as you uh, go through the execution, um, the, the dreaming of these events and then the execution of them, you're always going to find road bumps. And so it's very helpful to have like a second mind or a third mind helping like navigate uh, and troubleshooting the execution. So I, I would uh, definitely advise having a partner have a checklist so that you can break down what is going to actually be needed on every level because the more you break down the task at hand, the easier and more achievable it's going to be. And be optimistic, be open-minded, and be flexible. Because you might dream up a certain event and see it in a certain way, and life is life, and it might not go exactly how you thought, but that doesn't mean like the event failed or that you can't achieve something in the event. So, yeah, be be flexible, open-minded, and resilient when you're trying to figure out how you're going to execute. I think that's good life advice in general. <laughs> All very, very sensible. And then finally, do you think that doing these events and, and uh, you know, doing this extracurricular stuff as a student makes you more confident when you go on placements and more confident to the thought of being an intern when you're going to see real-life patients and have to manage them? Yeah, I definitely think that... You know, being in the taking on the leadership role of uh, managing these events and working, leading a team has been really good, like life skill, soft skill development. I think it will translate later on to working in teams on the wards and understanding like the different perspectives people are coming from. I also think like there's an undeniable hierarchy in medicine. And so when I am on the wards, I will be the baby intern. And it does help make things be a little bit less daunting, knowing that I've worked with a lot of these team doctors in the past and like they are humans and that uh, like we all treat each other with respect and such. And um, we could just hope for that at the end of the day. One last question. What's what's the next event on the horizon for UCC Emergency SOC? I'm so happy you asked. So next week, we are hosting a live COVID forum with the idea in mind that a lot of students have been outside of placement uh, for different patches of this school year because of uh, the pandemic. Um, and a lot of us 
you know, don't really know what's going on there. How are things being handled? What What's actually going on in real time um, in some of the hospitals? So UCC and Merge Talk got together and we've recruited a number of high profile uh, doctors across the world and they're coming together next Thursday night uh, to give us some perspectives of what it's been like to work on the front line in the middle of this pandemic. So um, we will have speakers from New York, we'll have speakers from Manchester, and we'll have speakers from our own home in Ireland. And uh, yeah, we would love to see you there if you check out our uh, Facebook page for the link. That sounds like an amazing event. Well done. I'll definitely join. Super. Well, thanks so much for spending your time coming on. Uh, It's great to chat to you. Thanks so much for having me, Callum. And that is it for another episode of the Case Dot Report. Thanks very much for listening. And a special thanks to Dr. Kidney, Dr. Kennedy, and Natalie Kirkowski for giving us their time. Find us on Twitter at the Case Report to join the conversation. Subscribe to the feed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.